welcome along. Hope you're tucked up, very cozy, under maybe a weighted blanket. I don't know if you tried those. They, they do help with uh, one's sleep. They're very, very nice, the, uh, the gravity blankets. You need one, I think there has to be a third of your weight, but I can't find one that heavy, sadly. So I need two gravity blankets. But I'm right by uh, the, the, the fire pit again. It's an old World War One helmet, and I'm using a bayonet to uh, to move around the coal and the wood. It's very toasty. We've got a blizzard coming up tonight. Six inches. Six inches, you say? Oh, no problem. Keep Calm and Cauliflower Cheese. That is the name of the game. That is the name of the podcast. It's uh, rather lovely to have you here. And, uh, you know, you can maybe roast a couple of marshmallows next to me, pop it on the stick, and but please don't use the, don't use that insipid chocolate beginning to an H, don't make the smalls of that, it's horrible, you need the Cadbury's, much creamier, delicate flavour, um, but it made me think, I mean, I, I, I do have a, uh, a Baywatch Speedo on today, and, and that sort of waffer-thin black turtleneck, tray elegant, a little bit like a spy. We'll be doing some sleuthing and who knows what in the blizzard tonight. It's very distracting though, with, the, with, the, with the sound of the wind echoing through the valley and snow starting to cascade. Very festive, definitely very festive. There's no doubt about that. So with the uh, with the with the wafer thin uh, turtleneck on, it, it is making me think about one's childhood and a certain song that uh, It's all because the lady loves milk tray, which is the most decadent chocolate box you could you could get. There was a wonderful Cadbury's chocolate, a lot of nutty little chocolates in there as well, some toffees, some caramels. It was a it was a decadent chocolate box, um, and I, I do believe you can still get it. But I mean, it's sort of making me think of some of the American alternatives. If you turn up. Climbing a tree, or appear at the window, holding up a Snickers bar. It doesn't have quite the same effect as the as a box of Cadbury's milk tray, or you, or you peer through the frosted glass coming through the blizzard, holding a Tootsie Roll. It, again, it's not quite the same as a as a decadent box of Cadbury's milk tray. Oh, how I yearn for that. But I did discover um, a chocolate that I will be talking about and describing later that will probably change 2020 for you. Um, And it'll certainly make your festive season without a doubt. So coming along the way today, we we have lots of excitement uh, packed to the rafters uh, full of uh, stuff, including... 
you know, as, as I as I reach, you know, the ripe old age, the 43 and a half, it was actually more than that, actually, sadly, 43 and three quarters almost, I um, I, I find I have to get up in the night to uh, to leak what's lizard. Um, that's, that's, that's certainly true, but I'm also having to make notes to remind myself when I put things in different places, such as the dog food under the Nespresso machine, um, that I had to write a reminder for that today. It, 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 old age is coming to you when you have to start writing little notes on your iPhone to remind you where certain things are, and uh, and that's what I'm that's what I'm doing. So um, <clears throat> we, we'll be talking about the orange cheesy snack that I saw scattered in a blanket of snow. What does it mean? Um, I'm going to make you forget about gingerbread houses. As much as they're lovely, I mean, the gingerbread house is, is superb, but you'll be forgetting about them by the end of this podcast. And my solution, the remedy for the abhorrent inflatable Christmas decoration you see outside some people's houses, we've got the remedy, the solution, and you'll be pleased to hear about it. So this is the second of the, the, the bumper edition of, uh, of podcasts that we have. Uh, and some of the things that we may or may not be talking about today. A sprinkling of asteroid dust lands in the outback. Avert your eyes, the uh, hum rise of penises on television. Um, we never talk about Tom Carriage's spiced roast duck recipe which is a good Christmas alternative. I'll be giving you the first part of my mince pie recipe. We'll be talking about the history of mince pies uh, coming up soon in the next couple of podcasts over the next few weeks. Um, and then we have Which Quality Street Are You? That's another chocolate. We're chocolate laden today. Chock-a-block, one could say. The thong is back, and here's why. Uh, Kate Middleton had a few uh, spelling mistakes and a heartfelt message that she left at a train station. Uh, for some of the essential workers at the train station. Um, tons of silly sausage waste heaped and helps feed the hungry. And uh, home bakers snap up ginger stocks amid the global shortage of ginger. Did, does ginger help virility? Or am I imagining that it... I don't know if it helps virility or not. Or if it's good for the tummy. Is either good for virility or good for the tummy? Or maybe both, who knows? Um... And also, the Queen's bathroom must-haves have been revealed. Um, and also, um, some of the issues uh, in Russia over no alcohol over Christmas is making some people very, very, very upset. Uh, the Dominic Cummings jokes, the best Dominic Cummings jokes of 2020, uh, will be revealed, uh, hopefully today, if we have time. Uh, we will be having an enigmatic English eccentric. We will be having uh, some uh, historical tinder. Uh, as well, um, and uh, probably some more uh, trample trombone coming along the way a little bit later. So we've got a busy, busy uh, show ahead. Uh, it's lovely to have you here. It's episode 43, and uh, and forgive me for the speedo. Um, don't forgive me for the turtleneck. I think it's a good look. They say black is slimming, uh, but possibly not on me. Um, but it's it's an, it's an elegant look. It's a, it's a slightly elegant look, one would say. Uh, but uh, settle down under the gravity blanket or, or something very fluffy, maybe a white fluffy blanket, uh, maybe uh, 
maybe heat up some hot chocolate. The Nespresso, by the way, is rather good when it comes to um, heating up. There's a Nespresso uh, milk frother. Now that does make bloody good hot chocolate. It's fantastic. Put some of that froth on the top of your hot chocolate and, uh, and it, it'll make your Christmas, it'll make your New Year. It'll add a little pep in your step, a little froth in your step. And uh, it's, it's, it's a very sort of sexy addition at the end of the hot chocolate, I think. So there's a lot of talk at the moment about the uh, season four of The Crown, which is magnificent, by the way. I don't, don't care whatever anybody's saying. It is fabulous. Um, Emma Corrin is marvellous as Diana. And uh, Gillian Anderson is an absolute powerhouse of Thatcher. Um, but the Windsors have, are unscathed by the Crown's melodrama, despite accusations that the latest series of Netflix drama bends the truth and does a hatchet job on Prince Charles' viewers. Esteem for the royal family has grown. The royal family does not fare well in series four. The Crown, with its tales of rampant adultery, clashes between the Queen and the Prime Minister, and all manner of domestic tantrums and seething hostilities filling a ten-hour-long episodes. Um, yet fears that the Crown's cavalier intrusions into the most intimate moments of life at Buckingham and other palaces might damage the image and standing of the monarchy look misplaced. Research suggests the Netflix drama latest outbreak of torrid muckraking, whether factually based or fabricated for the artistic purposes, is doing little harm to the esteem in which the Queen and most of the members of the royal family are held in the programme's viewers. With the notable exception of the Duke of York, whose image problem has little to do with Netflix, the popularity of the royal family has broadly increased since Series 4. A poll of 1,023 viewers conducted by the researcher Focal Data found that 35% of people who watched a new series said that their impression of the rules had improved either a bit or a lot. So I have to say, um, where I was brought up is North Norfolk, very near Sandringham House. And let me tell you, on Christmas morning, when, when the royal family goes to church, it's a wonderful thing to go and see the royal family. You can get close to the royal family and give flowers to the Queen, um, to uh, uh, the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, um, Duke and Duchess of Sussex, um, I, saw Diana uh, there many, many years ago as well. I mean, it's, it's a really fabulous place to go. But the amount of people who pack in to Sandringham on Christmas morning shows that the monarchy is still thriving. People are fascinated by the monarchy. Love them or loathe them. Most people love them. And you can see that by the heaving crowds that are there on Christmas Day. So there is a DIY reef craze this year on the nation's front doors. And I'm seeing it in, in the U.S., and, and I believe also it's in the UK as well. When you take a stroll around your neighborhood this month, pay close attention to the doors. A considerably more wholesome pursuit has taken place rather than the Christmas party this season is DIY wreath making. We've seen a thousand percent increase in demand from last year, says Joe Woodward, founder of Wreath Making, delivered in Chichester, Chichester, West Sussex in the UK, offering DI kits and workshops. It's impossible to keep up. I had to stop taking orders uh, for our wreath kits three years ago and close uh, bookings on the workshops. It appears not to be just a British phenomenon. For the first time in eight years, she's been shipping kits across the world. She sent kits to Croatia, Bulgaria, Singapore, the US, India, uh, uh, though the custom rules that meant we could only send artificial foliage. Uh, she also uh, runs workshops where she sends a kit to your home and then you join in an online tutorial and to help explain how to make the wreath. They have been used to substitute Christmas parties um, 
for some. So, you know, you have brief building parties, I guess. Orders have come in much earlier, seen 70% more in demand. Some of the companies who book the workshops are offering them instead of Christmas parties and send alcohol along. Now, here's the thing. If I was drinking and boozing whilst making the wreath, I'd end up getting pricks in my fingers, you know, from the holly. Or, I don't know, you know, fur or holly. Um, it would it would definitely happen. Or they would end up holly pieces in the, in the glass of scotch or the gin and tonic or something. Um, I did remember, though, um, slight sort of a skewed festive story. Um, playing rugby around Christmas time many, many years ago. Um, and uh, I, I did see one of the players uh, put Holly in another player's jock strap. Um, I tell you something; it was a it was a prickly situation in more than one one way, uh, and uh, and it didn't help uh, as he got sort of crushed into the scrum, and the Holly uh, basically pricked him in places, pricked him in the prick basically, and uh, that it was a slightly uncomfortable situation for the poor chap. I've never seen a huge rugby player with tears down his eyes, but when you've got Holly in the crotch, that does happen indeed. So this last week has, has been an absolutely sort of huge week in terms of history, because 40 years ago, uh, on the 8th of December, uh, the marvellous, talented artist that is John Lennon was shot um, exactly 40 years ago. Uh, there's a new book, James Patterson, the author um the multimillionaire novelist ran to the scene when he heard the Beatle had been shot and now he's given the murder the thriller treatment. Patterson vividly remembers that winter night on December the 8th, 1980. He was at home in Manhattan when he heard on television that John Lennon had been shot dead nine blocks away. Patterson, who uh, was very fond of the Beatles, dashed to the scene. I went up there and there was already a crowd. It was unbelievable. I was gobsmacked by the whole thing. By 4 a.m., more than 500 stunned fans were gathered, grieving outside the Dakota, the luxury apartment block in New York's Upper West Side, where the 40-year-old Len had been living with his wife, Yoko Ono. The couple were heading inside to kiss their five-year-old son, Sean, goodnight, when Mark Chapman uh, fired five shots from his revolver. Patterson has written the book The Last Days of John Lennon, which rattles through the familiar trajectory of the Fab Four, smash hips, smash ups, fares, and recreates Chapman's movements in the run up to the murder. It looks an absolutely fascinating book. I mean, it, it really does send tingles down the spine because one wonders what would have happened if, uh, if Lennon had survived. Would the Beatles have got back together in the 80s? They were very close to getting back together on an American chat show in the early 70s. I think they're both in Manhattan and they nearly came on together um, to reunite um, as half the Beatles because Harrison and uh, Ringo Starr weren't there at the time. But the fascinating thing uh, with the whole Lennon thing is he, he had had long hair for about 10 or 15 years and he decided on the day that he was shot that he, uh, he wanted to go and get a haircut. Um, and apparently um, James Taylor, the musician, had uh, signed an autograph for Chapman uh, just before um, Lennon did. Because Lennon actually signed an autograph before um, he met Chapman later, who shot him. And um, so, so, so Lennon went to get his haircut, and he actually, uh, you know, had had the Teddy Boy haircut that he had had years and years ago, on the last day of his life, he, he changed his haircut and went for the Teddy Boy haircut. And then that's when he went back to Dakota and that's when Chapman shot him. I mean, it's it, it's an absolutely uh, 
momentous occasion in terms of the history of rock and roll music. Um, but this book looks absolutely fascinating, and one I'm definitely going to read for Christmas. So a sprinkling of asteroid dust lands in the outback. Japanese scientists have retrieved a capsule of precious sand from an asteroid 180 million miles away, which was successfully dropped into the Australian outback by returning space probe six years after it left Earth. The success of the Hibusa mission is a triumph for Japan's Aerospace Exploration Agency. And the contents of the capsule could yield revelations about the birth of the solar system and the development of the life on Earth. Uh, having delivered its cargo, the probe will head back into the depths of space on a 10-year journey to a smaller, even more distant asteroid. Shortly before dawn, the capsule appeared as a brief fireball has entered the atmosphere at a speed of 447 miles an hour above Woomera in South Australia. It floated down by parachute, emitting beacon signals that were picked up by the waiting Japanese scientists. We found the capsule Jacks announced on its Twitter feed together with the parachute. Wow, it's a beautiful descent in the atmosphere, uh, said one of the uh, general managers. Uh, just spotted the Hibusa. Uh, he tweeted, unfortunately not bright enough for the handheld camera, but enjoyed watching the capsule. I mean, absolutely fascinating um, some, of the, uh, some of the things coming out of space at the moment and getting back into space exploration. That, uh, and, I, and I believe there's a, a moon mission that's uh, planning for 2024. Um, but I'm very excited. I do need to get a telescope um, for the for the uh, uh, for the space event, the lunar event um, that uh, was going to occur on the 21st of December. Um, really interesting that the Jupiter Saturn event is going to be very exciting, very interesting. And uh, I do need to find a telescope. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I have to get one off Amazon, I suppose. But uh, looking forward to that. The, the strange thing, I lived in Chicago for many years and everybody had a telescope. Who knows why? I think everybody were per everybody living in downtown Chicago were perverts or voyeurs. They wanted to look into other people's apartment with the telescopes because you could not really see the skyline in Chicago. Uh, the, 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 you could not see the stars uh, above the skyline. But everybody had a telescope, so... There was some, uh, certainly some rather subtle perversions going on, I think, when peering through the lens and seeing what your neighbour is up to. Avert your eyes, ladies and gentlemen. The eggplant is visible on a lot of TV screens. It's rare these days for the small screen drama not to feature an actor showing his, his manhood. Is television trying too hard, one asks. In the first episode of the primetime BBC2 drama Industry, we see a trainee city trader looking at himself in the mirror, psyching himself up in front of uh, night tiles. He is fully frontally naked and full of bounce. Things that you'll be aware of if you watch the series get increasingly more in your face from there. Switch on your average critically acclaimed drama these days and it will no longer have the old staples of the genre, such as moody cinematography or a steamy sex scene. It will also insist on a male member. Thus, normal people, the BBC's lockdown hit, tickled its viewers with a glimpse of its breaks, breakout stars, Paul Meskell's crown jewels in response, while last year's HBO's edgy sensation Euphoria served up what is technically reserved, uh, referred to as a sausage fest in a changing room, and now here is industry waving it all about as well. Um, but uh, the first thing is to say that it's been actually been discreetly flashing before eyes for some time. Keen willy spotters... I mean, are there people out there who are actually willy spotters? I mean, you get, you've get you got the bird twitchers, and now you've got the willy spotters. I mean, do people just 
tune into spot willies? Is that is that how it goes? I mean, I try to avoid willy spotting if possible. Um, and it's hard in the US. There's very little, there's very few willies to be seen at, at any time, especially on the main channels and never, never, never during the day. And, and you don't even have it after the watershed. So there's uh, very little uh, willy spotting going on. Um, does does one get paid for willy spotting? I wondered. You know, do you get paid by the hour or by the inch or something? I mean, who who knows? I mean, it's something to really ponder. I suppose not that I'm going to ponder too much, but uh, something to something to maybe put to the back of one's mind potentially. So from willies to tons of sausage waste help feeding the hungry. Many of us find that we perform better under pressure. We're sort of almost going back to the willy spotting again. And the same turns out to be true for the machines that make gourmet sausages for British supermarkets. Senior figures have described it as horrific that 250 tons of edible food goes to waste each year within the food manufacturing industry, often because of technical issues in the production process. With help from Fair Share Charity, hundreds of companies have found innovative ways to feed hungry people. At Gourmet Sausage Factory in Hull, pork is blended with herbs, spices, chutneys, lemon zest and apples to produce sausages that end up on the supermarket shelves. 90 machines pump 200 grams or kilograms a load of sausage mix into their skins. The uh, finished sausage snake out of the conveyor belt has to be cut and packaged. Most of the mix pumps into the skins fairly easily, being forced through the pressure of the mix behind. At the end of the run, however, the pressure drops, leaving about seven kilograms of sausage meat just left there. This has to be cleaned uh, by hand so the apparatus can be cleaned and cleared before processing to a different recipe. So, th th so th this is what's happening. We're basically, um, they're basically taking the sausage waste or the leftover sausage, not waste, and, uh, and packaging it up and, um, and, and feeding it to the hungry. So none of the sausage uh, meat uh, that has exploded through the skin is going to waste. And I think this is absolutely fantastic. I mean, that, I mean, other than being a, a, a chocolatier, I think working in a sausage factory could be one of my, possibly one of my dream jobs. So big news, frightening six foot eight, uh, eight man of solid muscle left farm uh, animal stench near London. Uh, unsuspecting runner has shared a vivid description of a thickly built Branford beast which approached him during uh, before darting off into the woods at Box Hill in Surrey. The frightening sight of a towering ape man built of solid muscle has been reported running uh, a runner over just 25 miles outside of London, according to the bizarre claims. The amateur athlete claims to have a chilling encounter with a Bigfoot type beast in Box Hill, Surrey, whilst training in broad daylight. So it makes me it makes me think, and is it actually a, 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 a depiction, a illustrated depiction of the uh, of the uh, abominable snowman or Sasquatch or or uh, or Neanderthal or whatever it is? But apparently Joe Wicks, the trainer, the, the I mean he's a muscular trainer. One has to say is now taking his daily workout al fresco, and is now including prehistoric primate pilates. We do love a space story and keep calm and cauliflower cheese. But the UFO believer sensationally claims Jesus was an alien and star of Bethlehem is a spaceship. UFO expert Richard Lawrence has made the sensationally suggestion that uh, everything in the Bible has taught that been taught about the birth of Christ is inaccurate and that even the true date of Christmas is wrong. The UFO believer challenged the central pillar of Christian faith by bizarrely declaring that the Son of God was an alien and the story of the birth of Christ involved an alien spaceship. But when you're looking at the whole Christmas story, when it comes to this UFO story, let's face it, no wise men were involved in making up that story. 
So we have another lovely enigmatic English expression. So William Stracy um, is our enigmatic English expression today. Uh, Stracy spent the early part of his life as a civil servant in Calcutta. On returning to England, he refused to switch back to Greenwich Mean Time, spending the rest of his life at least five and a half hours ahead of London. He bought a mechanical bed with a clock that tipped him into a bath at an appointed hour. The experience was so disturbed him that he smashed the clock on the spot. Stracy would take breakfast at tea time and spend most of his waking hours at candlelight. So we've been talking on the podcast about some of the most uh, delicious and slightly eccentric uh, English foods we have uh, around Christmas time. Yesterday we talked about the sausage roll. So I, I really do want to talk about the history of the mince pie, which we will cover in the coming weeks before Christmas. But I wanted to share the first part of a... Um, mince pie recipe. When I say mince pie, people in, in, in the US and other parts of the world think you're talking about savory mince. No, but this is a sweetened mince meat. At one time, uh, back uh, around Victorian age, they did have uh, spiced meat uh, flavored with some of the holiday spices, all spice, cinnamon, nutmeg, and it was meat. Uh, but this is actually dried fruit. But the reason I'm telling you is I, I, I would like, and if you're interested, to prepare this uh, the filling for the pies now. But they have to be left in the fridge, and you have to soak them and feed them with brandy. I mean, wouldn't you just love to be fed by brandy every five, five days or so? Um, but no. So this is this is the recipe. And it's my dear mother, my l- l- lovely mother, who does listen to the podcast. She does sometimes have to wear earplugs, though, because it gets a little bit naughty and rude. And, uh, and you know, we have to send her an edited version of it that's, uh, that's, that's good for a, uh, a, you know, a, a slightly older lady um, who, uh, who, who doesn't want to hear these sort of rude words or anything like that. But I love my mother dearly. She is a wondrous cook, and she's a most fantastic mother. She's the warmest, most caring mother out there, and uh, and I talk to her every day, and I love talking to her. It's, it's it makes my day uh, when I talk to her, and we um, we chat and, and and have a good laugh. But anyway, so this is the mince meat. It's a it's a sweet mince meat, but it but it's uh, it has dried fruit in it. So you have half a cup of shredded suet. So like a lard, you can use a butter instead. Uh, half a cup of grated apple, two cups of mixed fruit, currants, sultanas, or golden currants as they're called in the US, raisins. I put some cranberries in, dried blueberries as well, uh, are very good, and some of the sour cherries. Some of those are really good. Half a cup of brown sugar. I'm doing the measurements uh, US style here, uh, but we can look at the equivalents if necessary. Rind and juice of a lemon or orange, nutmeg, cinnamon, mixed spice, all spice is optional. All spice is a great spice to have. I actually add it to rice sometimes when I'm cooking. Curries, four tablespoons of brandy. Um, leave it in a bowl for a day and then put in glass jars in the fridge till required. But I like to feed the mixture with brandy um, quite often over the course of those five days. So I'm going to be making it this afternoon, a little bit later, or maybe tomorrow. And uh, I'm going to be feeding it with brandy, and it soaks in, and the brown sugar mixes with brandy, and it's almost like a scientific experiment. It's absolutely delicious. Um, so you keep mixing it around and leaving it in the, in the fridge, uh, and then uh, the next stage we'll be making the pastry, and we'll be talking about that on another podcast. All right, so we have some more Trump on trombone, uh, where we take some pretty awful heinous headlines and uh, stories from the week, and we equate it to the sad trombone or the Trump. The Trump in the UK is indeed this. 
There's like a foghorn trump going on there. There's our little raspy trombone as well. And uh, and then we have... That's the baby trump. So anyway, so that's what we have. Uh, and we equate it to this rather, rather sort of raspberry laden or uh, slow wah-wah trumpet type of thing. Um, but our first, uh, our first little story from the week here is a British Airways stewardess selling sex offerings. Um, so this is a, a nice uh, little uh, slightly risque article. Uh, British Airways investigating a stewardess is offering passengers a kinky onboard experience. The unnamed employee, who also reportedly sells her knickers online, is said to be enticing potential customers with mid-air racy snaps in her uniform. British Airways has launched an investigation. Um, it's apparently she's advertising to plane passages between flights as well as kinky onboard experiences. The unnamed crew member who is said also to sell her knickers online lures and prospective customers by taking racy snaps at 30,000 feet in her uniform. It is claimed she advertises services as air hostess 71 on Facebook. One snap sees her hitching up her skirt in the galley kitchen yards from unsuspecting passengers uh, the Sun newspaper reports, and uh, apparently one of her favorite flying days is No Panty Sunday. Uh, anyway, so maybe she's just doing some modeling of the old merchandise that British Airways is trying to sell off, you know, uh, watch me in my uh, 1970s knickers, uh, uh, you know, or um, or uh, maybe uh, eat antique 1970s spam whilst wearing those 1970s knickers. Let's uh, let's hope there's no old uh, cheese uh, fondue dipping going on. Um, but uh, she's indeed using her entrepreneurial expertise at 30,000 feet. <laughs> So next, a suspect in stolen car chase makes for run for it and ends up neck deep in cow poo. Sussex police uh, truly put a tragic looking picture of the handcuffed man on Facebook after his arrest. And luckily, we don't have smell-o-vision technology yet. Uh, when police stopped a suspected stolen car um, in Sussex on Wednesday, the passenger in the vehicle decided to make a run for it. He set across farmland in a bid to escape the pursuing cops, but he found himself up to his neck when he uh, tried to jump over a pit of manure. Uh, Sussex police wrote on Facebook that the suspect's pursuer took pity on him and dragged him out of the muck. Thanks to the determined officers, a rescue ensued, and they all end up, uh, ended up safe but covered in cow poo. Uh, they uh, wrote, adding a poop emoji just for good measure. Um, so th this really is a story truly of bovine brilliance. The bungling burglar ended up to his neck literally in his own bullshit. Two blokes chopping wood discover alien face that looks like a world-famous painting. In Suters, who volunteers at the Big Cat Sanctuary in Kent, says he was chainsawing logs when he saw an eerie face and said, Blimey, that just looks like the scream. Two blokes who were chopping up the trees at a wildlife sanctuary to make way for electric cables came across a bizarre alien face inside one of the logs, and they said that it's a dead ringer for the icon iconic painting, The Scream. I mean, has anybody checked that it's a, isn't a new alien Banksy? Or maybe a, a monolith money. The mum sparks backlash by saying that having real Christmas trees means you're middle class. A mum has sparked a first debate online over whether or not it's considered tacky to have an artificial Christmas tree in your home. 
Uh, by now, many people have decked the halls and put up their Christmas decorations, but when it comes to the tree, do you have a real or a fake one in your house? This is a question many people have been answering online recently after one mum shared a rather controversial post. The unnamed parent took to the site to share a debate that she'd been having with work about trees, and she explained that her colleagues seemed to be snobby about the idea of an artificial tree. This woman got thinking about whether a real tree is really a status symbol for the middle class and wealthy. So a real tree puts one in a middle class camp. But if you're really posh, if you erect an upper class frosted stripper pole, which some of these trees look like, uh, you could put on a fake show. It's not just for Christmas. It sticks to you and all the fake snow can be found all over you all year long. This isn't the same mum, but another mother sparks outrage with a classic choice for Christmas breakfast. Posting on Mum's Net, the parent was convinced that other uh, shared uh, families' festive traditions of fish finger sandwiches for breakfast on Christmas Day, but it was told it is certainly a no-go uh, by some of the people reading the posts. Uh, I mean, add a fried, bre a, fri a fried egg and baked beans to the fish finger breakfast, and I think you may have a breakfast of champions. But the thought of a Captain Birdseye and his fish fingers that early in the morning does turn my stomach, uh, as long as there's no, none of his own brand tartar sauce. The man apparently was roasted for using the website to rate how pretty his date is. Katie Cole took to Twitter to share screenshots of the message thread she'd sent from the man on Hinge. Uh, everything appeared to be going well, but then things took an awkward turn. A man who used a website to work out how attractive a girl is he matched to with a dating app was has been slammed for his behaviour. Katie Coe was left stunned after a man she connected with on Hinge, the dating app, designed to be deleted, uh, revealed something really odd. Before asking her to go on a date, he told her that he had to run a few pictures of her through computer software to check whether or not she was pretty enough for him. The man, uh, known only as Freddy, used a website called Pretty Scale, which analyses how attractive you are and before giving you a percentage out of 100. Um, he may uh, be running through prospective dates through this quality control software, but he needs to be ran through some sort of medieval torture device before being allowed to date again. He is technically doing the quality street candy test, but at trying to avoid coffee creams, uh, strawberry swirls, or a heffalump nutty surprise, or a free willy type of whale walnut whip. <coughs> And finally, uh, Chinese iron crotch kung fu masters fight to preserve a painful looking tradition. Uh, Wang Lutul is no ordinary kung fu master. The 65 year old from a village in central China practiced using a technique of excruciatingly, excruciatingly looking stranded martial arts coined iron crotch kung fu. His most famous technique involves a steel plate capped log, two meters, six foot five feet long in length, and weighing 40 kilograms, 88 pounds, that swings through the air and smashes into a man's crotch. When you practice iron uh, crotch kung fu, as long as you push yourself, you'll feel great, said Wang. Um, so it, all of this seems a little dim sung to me. I, I don't really want my never regions being flattened into dumplings. Uh, maybe 2020 is the year of the crushed cockerel. Okay, so one of my favourite uh, literary Christmas characters is the Ghost of Christmas Present. The Ghost of Christmas Present is the second of the three spirits that visit Scrooge in Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Unlike the first spirit, a childlike figure without gender that shows Scrooge's past, 
The Ghost of Christmas Present is a huge, earthy figure evocative of Father Christmas. As first described, his presence fills Scrooge's little room as if to show the immensity and importance of each celebration of Christmas. Scholars have long evaluated the description of the Ghost of Christmas Present. In addition to re referencing the English figure of Father Christmas, he is also similar to several Greek and Roman gods in particular. Father Christmas is derived from stories of Saturn, but there are also some allusion to the Greek gods Bacchus and Dionysus, who symbolize rebirth in certain interpretations. In Dickens, however, any reference to pagan gods is made over with the reference to Christianity. For instance, a spirit wears a, a, a scarboard, but does not carry a sword, suggesting victory over peace, over warfare. Scrooge's visit with the uh, ghost of Christmas past has well prepared him for the night's adventure. With this second spirit, he visits numerous homes and scenes, and two of these visits are tremendously important. The first is to the home of his clerk, Bob Cratchit. Here, Scrooge learns of the immense poverty in which his clerk and family live, and especially in the illness of Cratchit's son, Tiny Tim. Through the ghost, he learns that Tim's plight is desperate and that without intervention, he will die before the next Christmas. The other visit that Scrooge makes is to his nephew's home, where his views of hating Christmas have become a source of great merriment. This interlude demonstrates how far Scrooge has already progressed in reclaiming his soul. Instead of being frustrated and annoyed with jokes made at his expense, he appears to enjoy them and is animated and excited throughout the party of his nephew's house. The vital exchange occurs between Scrooge and the ghost at the end of the chapter. The spirit reveals that he is concealing two demon children in his robes, which he calls ignorance and want. These symbols are one reason that Dickens wrote his story and subsequent other stories that deal with injustices to the poor. Ignoring ignorance and wants dims the spirit of Christianity in the future of humankind, and perhaps Dickens seeks not only the salvation of Scrooge, but also the salvation of his readers with this passage. The brightness of Scrooge's visit with the ghost of Christmas present is a necessary interlude before the appearance of the final spirit, which shows Scrooge the loss of Tiny Tim and his own death. The bleakness of his visit with the last ghost in the chapters in general is a good contrast when compared to the joy encountered in the present. With these last two spirits, Scrooge is given a clear choice to keep Christmas in his heart all year round or to die unloved and unwept. But absolutely fantastic. I mean, um, in one version, I think a 1984 version of Christmas Carol, Edward Woodward plays the ghost of Christmas present. Huge man, green robes, uh, white uh, emboshed round the robe. Um, uh, he has a, he has a, uh, a crown of uh, holly. And then an absolute, almost like a Tudor feast um, within the room. Turkeys, geese, fruit, Christmas puddings, everything. It is, a, it is an absolute scene. And, and it is depicted wonderfully in that movie and described uh, in a wondrous fashion by Dickens himself in the actual novel. But that is my favourite, uh, probably Dickens' character, the ghost of Christmas present. Okay, so we have another historical Tinder competition. So normally on Tinder, swipe right or swipe left um, on the dating site. On uh, historical Tinder, though, the axe may swing to the right or the left, or maybe the guillotine, uh, or maybe a, a maybe a sword. Who knows? Or maybe uh, some uh, some of these monarchs and leaders and despots um, had a rather sort of naughty type of uh, 
lifestyle going on and uh, we will depict that too. Anyway, so this week we have um, Ibrahim of the Ottoman Empire, also known as Ibrahim the Mad, uh, was the most mentally unstable of a series of insane and cruel Turkish sultans that ruled the Ottoman Empire during the 16th century. And Ibrahim is believed to have suffered from a host of mental illnesses, uh, all of which uh, were no doubt encouraged by the cage a windowless building where he was kept for most of his youth. When his brother died in 1640, 23-year-old Ibrahim was released and declared sultan. Ecstatic and, and a little bit more unhinged, he immediately made up for lost time by building up a harem of virgins to satisfy his voracious sexual appetite. Ibrahim supposedly enjoyed having his concubine gather in a palace courtyard so he could gallop around them neighing like a stallion. He also had a fetish for fat women. At one point, sent his servants on a quest to find the heftiest lady of the land, and they returned with a 350-pound woman nicknamed Sugarcube, who became a favourite member of the harem. Ibrahim's excesses didn't end with sex. The Sultan also looked greedy, uh, and his agents frequently looted houses to provide him with perfumes, clothes, and anything else he desired. He also was notoriously violent, in addition to ordering executions and torture at will. Ibrahim once threw a body uh, of a baby into a pool of water and later uh, stabbed the boy in the face out of anger. This kind of debauchery and wanton cruelty won Ibrahim his fair share of enemies, and in 1648 a coup was staged. After being captured, the Sultan was briefly put up back into the cage before being strangled to death by assassins. His strangest behaviour was his impulsive, terrifically violent behaviour. Uh, for example, when the Sultan received information that a member of his harm had been compromised, he proceeded to have a number of women tortured. When he couldn't get any of them to give a name, Ibrahim had 280 members of the harem thrown into a lake and drowned. What a lovely chap. Alright, so this is our historical Tinder game. Uh, he's, he obviously did have an untimely death, um, but, uh, but there was a, a, you know, a lot of this going on. You know, there was a lot of uh, shenanigans going on, definitely. Uh, but ultimately, uh, he ended up uh, with his skull crushed. Okay, so we have a, a little a sort of Christmas, slightly festive tale here. Or, who knows what it actually means? It's a mystery. It's, it's a complete and utter mystery. Uh, so, I was trudging through the snow... Uh, with uh, Maggie and George, and uh, heading towards um, the, the the green belt, or as it's known now as a snow belt, and um, sort of sprinkled in the snow, I saw frosted cheesy snacks, frosted tip Cheetos. There was a trail in the snow, almost like a junk food Hansel and Gretel trail. Um, cascading along the path. Um, it could be a Hansel and Gretel trail for slightly cherubic, rotund children. Um, that if I follow it and pop them into my mouths, could be leading me to my impending doom, or, uh, or possibly, uh, or possibly if I'm lucky, uh, a huge Santa-type bag, a huge Santa-type bag of the munchies. So you get the Cheetos, you get the cheesy, uh, you know, you get the cheesy pretzels, you get the cheesy uh, uh, harvest snacks. I mean, that is fully laden joy right there. But what were the Cheetos? Where were they directing me? Is almost as mysterious as the monolith. It was a cheesy Cheeto monolith in the snow.
I mean, please, this year, I mean, I do love gingerbread. I do love a gingerbread house. But let me indulge you for a second here. I think we need to have a sleigh made of milk chocolate lint balls. The, the sleigh would move so aerodynamically through the snow with those smooth milk chocolate orbs. <sighs> wow. Uh, but let me, let me just indulge you once more and, and, and just for a little bit longer here. Today, um, I was looking at the descriptions of something that I had earlier in the week. It's a new selection of lint balls that you can get, the Lindor, um, inspired indulgently. I mean, it, was, it, it really is a, 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 very, a very sort of indulgent creation, one would say. Um, but it, it was absolutely phenomenal. And it's a Lint Lindor Holiday Assorted Milk Chocolate Truffle Mix. I mean, even that's making my mouth water. Um, but it's, uh, the description is this. Is inspired by the indulgently creamy taste of fudge milk and white chocolate experiences sophisticated flavor of Lint Lindor Assorted Milk Chocolate Truffles. A delicate shell enrobes a smooth melting core, making every bite irresistible. With the Lindor truffles, you can celebrate special occasions with something extraordinary. Put them under a Christmas tree, share them with lighting the menorah, or enjoy them with your family during the Kamuyayamani. This holiday bag of approximately 14 milk chocolate fudge swirls. And then the Pierre de Resistance, the milk with white snowman chocolate truffles, is a fantastic way to treat yourself to a great gift of somebody special. Fill a candidate with them and you'll surely delight them with a unique chocolate experience, offering a distinctly smooth and rich gourmet taste with premium ingredients with world-renowned regions. Lint master chocolatiers have been perfecting the art of fine chocolates with unmatched passion and commitment for over 165 years. I would match, if I became a lint chocolatier, I want to become a master lint chocolatier. And I would put so much passion and so much commitment into making those chocolates and indeed tasting those chocolates. Treat yourself this Christmas. The snowman white chocolate milk chocolate orb is delicioso. Thank you very much for listening to the podcast this week. It's been episode 44 of Keep Calm and Cauliflower Cheese. Lovely to have you here at Keep Cheese on Twitter, Keep Calm and Cauliflower Cheese, Instagram. Thank you so much for joining me again today. And one thing, um, as we go through this festive period and you have a little bit of time on your hands, train your dog to pop the abomination that are the inflatable Santas, the inflatable reindeers this Christmas. Get them to discreetly pop with their teeth these inflatables and get them out of our neighborhood. They are the most insipid things that I've seen. These, you know, Santa's bobbing, minions, all sorts of uh, inflatable nonsense. We do not need them. Let's look at the beautiful snow without seeing a six-foot Santa sucking on the candy cane or whatever or what the earth he's doing. Anyway, so we finish today with a lovely poem by Tennyson, Ring Out Wild Bells. Ring out wild bells to the wild sky, the flying cloud, 
the frosty light, the year is dying in the night, ring out wild bells and let him die. Ring out the old, ring in the new, ring happy bells across the snow. The year is going, let him go, ring out the false, ring in the true. Ring out the grief that saps the mind for those who here we see no more. Ring out the feud of rich and poor, ring in redress to all mankind. Ring out slowly dying cause and ancient forms of party strife. Ring in the nobler modes of life with sweeter manners, purer laws. Ring out the want, the care, the sin, the faithlessness, the coldness of the times. Ring out, ring out my mournful rhymes and ring in the fuller minstrel in. Ring out false pride in place and blood, the civic slander and the spite. Ring in the love of truth and right. Ring in the common love of good. Ring out old shapes of foul disease, ring out the narrowing lust of gold, ring out the narrowing walls of old, ring in the thousand years of peace. Ring in the valiant men and free, the larger heart, the kinder hand, ring out the darkness of the land, ring in Christ that is to be. Again, so grateful for you to joining me today on the podcast. It's been lovely to have you here. About to head into a blizzard. I better put a, a little, few more clothes on over the speedo and, uh, and head out into the blizzard and uh, walk the hounds before it gets too dark and the sky bruises on this uh, snow-laden landscape that we have here. Again, au revoir, cheerio, lovely to have you here. Talk to you again next week.